0: I saw the news yesterday that uh, Alabama native Jimmy Buffett passed away uh, at the age of 76. Uh, For you younger people, that may not mean a whole lot, but uh, ask your parents and grandparents about Jimmy Buffett uh, sometime. I'm not going to speculate whether or not Jimmy is getting his cheeseburger in paradise. That'd be a different sermon. Uh, But I get all my news these days from 1819, from 1819 News. And uh, the article they had on Buffett's passing was really interesting. It ended this way, it said Buffett canceled his show slated for May 20th in Charleston, citing an issue, obviously some kind of medical issue that, quote, needed immediate attention. And then it went on to say that in the same statement, Buffett declared growing old is not for sissies. Jimmy Buffett, singer of songs, says growing old is not for sissies. Now, uh, I doubt that Solomon, uh, at the height of his wisdom, would have agreed with very much of the lyrical content in Buffett's songs, but I do think that Solomon would agree with that statement of Buffett, that growing old is not for sissies, because actually you could say that is a theme in Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. Ecclesiastes gives us permanently relevant social commentary. Social analysis for every generation, every time and place. And this is one reason why it addresses issues that are always arising, like the issue of aging, the issue of getting old. The aging process itself is a kind of trial to be endured. Yet like all trials, we should count it as joy. We just sang about this in the hymn just a moment ago in that fourth stanza. Yes, on through life's long path, Still chanting as we go, from youth to age, by night and day, in gladness and in woe, rejoice, 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 give thanks and sing. That really summarizes it. The, 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 the aging process, the process of growing old, is difficult. It is a trial in itself. And yet, like all trials, we should count it as joy. In chapter 11, verse 8, Solomon says, if, so note the if, he does not take it for granted. This will happen in everyone's life. He says, if a man lives many years, may he rejoice in them all. So Solomon is saying, every age and stage of life should be full of joy. Every age and stage of life should be full of joy. But also, he notes, every phase of life, every season of life has its peculiar trials. And I would say that in general, life gets harder as you go. That's not a flaw. That's a design feature. Children are not supposed to bear adult-sized burdens or or solve adult-level problems. Solomon, in fact, wants the young to rejoice in their youth, to enjoy the playfulness of childhood. Why rejoice in your youth? Why does he command the young to rejoice in their youth? Because in the prime of youth, it is a great time of possibility and opportunity. Uh, Those who are in the prime of their youth will find that it it is a time of maximum energy. In those prime younger years, people are at their greatest in terms of strength and beauty. Proverbs 20, 29, I read it for us last week. The first part of that verse says, the glory of young men is their strength. There is a glorious strength that comes with a young man, a man in the prime of his youth. But we know that strength does not last, it fades. Just as beauty fades, that strength fades. No matter how hard you try to stay looking young and feeling young, life eventually catches up with you. So one question we could pose to Solomon is this, what do you do with your youth while you have it? I don't think Solomon would say youth is wasted on the young. I think he would say that's possible but it doesn't have to be that way. Solomon would say, don't waste your youth. The gift of Youth is indeed a a kindness to you, all that comes with it. The gift of youth should be used to the glory of God. And in fact, that is what Solomon says, I think, in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. What does it mean to remember your creator? What is this remembering? To remember here can be contrasted with forgetting. The Bible has quite a bit to say about forgetting, to not forget your God. To remember your God, your creator here, means to live your whole life for him. It means to be mindful of God in all that you do, in all your planning, speaking, and acting. To remember your creator is to worship him, to pray to him, to trust him. And, the, and young people need to be reminded to remember their creator. They need this reminder again and again because they're prone to forget. They need to be making these things ha- habits. Don't forget to pray. Don't forget to worship God. Don't forget to study his word. Don't forget to... Have God in mind and what he wants you to do in everything in life. This remembering is not merely a mental act. It is an act of your whole person. And I would tell you young people here gathered today to have parents who have taught you about God from your earliest earliest days so that you know God in your youth, to have parents who have brought you into the covenant via baptism, To have parents who have brought you to church from your earliest days, who have taught you God's word from your earliest days, from your infancy, that's actually how Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, how his childhood is described. He had been taught the scriptures from infancy. To have all of that, as so many of you in this congregation do, that is a tremendous privilege. It is the ultimate privilege. We talk a lot today about privilege, different forms of privilege. Covenant privilege is the ultimate privilege. It is a gift of unequaled value. Do not squander that inheritance you've already been given. It's the best possible inheritance your parents can bestow on you. This spiritual inheritance, this legacy of trusting God, knowing him, worshiping him. Remembering your creator means remembering God cannot be mocked. It means understanding that you will reap what you have sown. Your actions have consequences that will reverberate throughout the rest of your life. Yes, even the things you do in youth, even for young people, it is true, you will reap what you have sown. Solomon wants the young to remember their creator before the rigors and hardships of the aging process really set in. Solomon is saying here that God is really worthy of a whole lifetime of service. And so the time to remember your creator is now. Don't wait another day. The earlier in life you begin to remember your creator, the better. Because all of us are on the clock. Time is winding down. Sand is pouring through the hourglass of your life. Solomon's message is clear. Repent and remember God now while there is time. This is the day of salvation. Remember God now, even in your youth. Well, then in chapter 2, verse 2, he begins to describe what the aging process is like. But note this point. He is describing old age and ultimately death. He is describing what old age is like for the benefit of the young. So key to understand that. Obviously the old benefit from what Solomon says here, it can help them understand themselves and understand what's happening uh, as they grow older. But the young benefit as well because they need to know what lies ahead of them so they can prepare for it. That's actually the key to growing in wisdom as a young person. It's actually a key to wisdom, realizing the true brevity of life, that things will not always be as they are now. That's what Solomon wants the young to understand. For the faithful, for the wise, for those who do remember their creator, life moves from glory to glory. Life is a series of death death and resurrections, deaths and resurrections, as we move from one degree of glory to another. As the glory of youth fades, another glory comes and takes its place. I read for you the first part of Proverbs twenty, verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, but that kind of glory doesn't last. The rest of Proverbs 20, verse 29, says this. The glory of old men is their gray head. There is a glory that comes with old age. The, the gray head or the silver head or the white head or the shiny head of an old man is like a crown. It's glorious. It symbolizes his wisdom. You know, think about an old man, the, the, the battle-scarred veteran of life who has been through the struggles and the battles and the hardships and the ups and downs. He's got this experience. And yet, if he has remembered his creator through it all, that man wears a crown of glory. Life moves from glory to glory. And actually, I think what that in Proverbs teaches and what Solomon teaches is that the aged actually have a greater glory. They're closer to glory, for one thing. They're closer to their home as Solomon uh, describes it here Uh, they have a greater glory the young are like water the old are like wine that's a way to think about it the older you are the closer you are to the finish line the closer you are to your true home Solomon wants us all to see life is a one-way trip from the cradle to the grave and you don't get a do-over there's no rewind button sure yes there is forgiveness but you don't get second chances Life does not have a reverse gear. Time only flows in one direction. It does not stop. <laughs> time waits for no one. And so you had better make the most of the time you have. And, and, and I think Solomon would say, in remembering your creator, even the days of your youth, minimize serious sins or big mistakes that would burden you and create baggage for you then to carry the rest of your way on life's journey. See, if you're not on the right path in life, a path defined by trusting God and keeping his commandments, as we'll see, if you're not on the right path in life, you're headed for disaster. If you are on the right path, then you can know this, even as your body crumbles, you are growing in wisdom. Even as you waste away outwardly, inwardly, you're being renewed. Even as you are dying, the life of Jesus is being revealed in you and through you. Even as you become less outwardly glorious, in a way there is a greater glory being bestowed upon you. Your body can be in ruins, and yet your eyes can still shine with the light of the gospel. And that is a strong and beautiful thing in its own right. There is a kind of strength and beauty that accompanies faithfulness in old age. You can't stay young forever. You won't stay young for very long But how you live as a young person will go a long way in determining how the second half of life goes for you. Now, before we look in more detail at what Solomon says about old age, uh, there are going to be some of you who say, well, uh, what about me? Uh, I'm not exactly young anymore, uh, but I'm also not old. I'm not ready to say that I'm old. So where do I fit into this? That's a great question. Uh, Psalm 90 says, the years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength, 80. It's interesting that our life expectancy today is kind of right in the middle of what Moses said it would be. Uh, but, but think about this. If you, if, so if life is typically 70 to 80 years, if you cut that in half, that would put what we might call middle age right around 35 or 40. And so we can think of middle age, and, and it's not just obviously one point, but a, a, a period of time. Middle age is that transitional time from youth to maturity. Here's the thing. Because that transition can be hard, sometimes people will speak of a midlife crisis. We've all heard about this, the, the, the midlife crisis. And I will tell you this. If you are not grounded going into those middle years of life, that transitional time from being young to being old, if you're not grounded going into those middle years, it will be a very difficult time. Because in middle age, all kinds of things start to happen. Middle age is when you find out that you don't know as much as you thought. And so you've got to learn to trust God in new ways. You get humbled in new ways. It's a time when you realize you're really not going to live forever. Maybe you knew that in one sense before, but now you really start to experience it. You're not invincible the way you once were. Your body is not what it once was. Tendons aren't what they once were. There are usually tremendous demands put on people in that middle phase of life. And with those demands come new pressures and new temptations, heavy burdens to carry. It's often the time of peak parenting involvement. It's often the time of peak job demands. Uh, It's often the time when uh, perhaps you even have to start caring for your own aging parents. And again, if you are not grounded in the faith and in the kind of wisdom that Solomon is describing here, this can be a real struggle. I would say middle-agers can be as unstable as teenagers. In fact, it is alarming the number of Christian men and women who have gone off the rails in middle age. The number of Christian men and women who go off the rails in middle age, it's very alarming. Some people just don't handle this transition well. Solomon himself could be understood as an example of this. Solomon was in middle age when he began to turn away from the Lord and go after other gods. We know that from the chronology of his life. He was somewhere in his 40s when it happened. Most recently, think of examples like Josh Harris or Derek Webb or Tully and or Darren Patrick or Rob Bell or Shane Claiborne. All examples of very public Christians, celebrity type Christians you might say, who turned away from the faith or who had serious falls in these middle years, in this middle age period. It happened. And it happens because people reach this challenging stage of life, this transitional stage of life, without being grounded in the realities Solomon describes here. Middle age is that point in life when time really seems to speed up. You know, when you're young, it seems like time moves too slow. Uh, When you get old, it seems like time moves too fast. You know, when you're young, you can't wait for Christmas to get here. It seems like it takes forever. And when you're old, you're like, oh, it's Christmas again. I can't believe it. Okay. Time seems to speed up. You, you blink your eyes and your kids are grown and gone. Middle age is when a lot of dreams die because you realize you're not going to do and accomplish everything in life you set out to do. You're not going to accomplish everything you wanted to. I think one reason people start to have a really hard time celebrating their own birthdays in middle age is because it almost becomes like an annual reminder that deep down you feel like you really should have accomplished more by this age. You know that your window of opportunity in life is quickly closing and you feel like, well, now I'm X number of years old and what do I really have to show for it? And so birthdays become a burden rather than a a celebration. I think the biggest thing that makes middle age hard is this. It's when you enter into the second part of life, decisions you made in the first part of life start to catch up with you. The seeds you planted in your youth are now growing. They're coming up from the ground, and they're being harvested. You're beginning to reap what you have sown. And so if you made a lot of bad decisions earlier in life, if you got into a lot of bad patterns, say in your marriage, you get into a lot of bad patterns in your marriage, you get into bad habits with your finances, uh, you've been a lazy or abdicating parent This is where those bad patterns, those bad decisions really start to catch up with you. And now you've got to deal with the bad fruit that's being born. Now, of course, if you've been sowing good seed all these years, usually that's going to mean reaping a bountiful harvest, a pleasant harvest as you move into the second part of life. And there's a lot of people who really enjoy the second part of life even more than the first because in so many ways they're enjoying the benefits of what they've done. I like what Teddy Roosevelt said. Teddy Roosevelt said, old age is like anything else in life. To be good at it, you have to start young. It's the sowing and reaping principle. Roosevelt was exactly right. Now, look at Solomon's poem. Let's get back into the text here. That was a little diversion, a little detour. uh, For those of you who feel like you fall in between, you're not really young, not really old. There's something for you to think about. But look at Solomon's poem about old age here. This poem is not pessimistic. It might seem that way. It's realistic, but I wouldn't say it's pessimistic. It is a, it, there's a kind of realism that characterizes it. We have to remember, death as we know it entered the creation as the curse for sin. And you can think, this is not the only perspective on aging we're given, but it's one perspective. Aging is just the slow motion outworking of that curse that was laid down in Genesis chapter 3. So long as we live life under the sun, that is Solomon's, language for life in this world so long as we live life under the sun in the world as it is here and now we have to do with the curse yes ultimately we know we will ascend above the sun to the heavenlies yes we know resurrection blessing will ultimately overcome the death curse but so long as we live in this age on this planet in these bodies we have to contend with the curse that means contending with death and everything that leads up to it the manifestations of death Along the way, the the symbols of death, the signs of death, the signs that death is at work, even as we live. The resurrection, the new earth, the life of the age to come are all ultimate realities for us, but not yet. We're not there yet. So we have to contend with aging. It's a way of contending with the curse. How does Solomon describe aging? How does he describe death? Well, look at this. Verse 2, he describes age as difficult days. Those days when you're older, they are difficult days. Sun, moon, and stars grow dim. These heavenly bodies are symbolic of rule. So as life begins to draw to a close, you finally get to where you can't work anymore. You can't further dominion anymore. You're not able to exert rule over the creation in the same way. Uh, He compares growing old to storm clouds gathering that are going to break over you. Verses three to five, you can almost think of of the rest of this poem as it's kind of like this old house. And it's like he's, he's comparing the human body to a dilapidated old house, a dilapidated old structure that's falling apart. So he says, the keepers of this house tremble. That would probably be hands and arms. When you get old, you don't have the same kind of stability with your hands and arms. He says, the strong men bow down. That's probably legs, now bent with age. He says, the grinders will cease because they are few. That's teeth, teeth that don't work as well or teeth that have fallen out. Windows that grow dim. This is eyes failing, possibly because of cataracts. He speaks of doors shut in the streets. That is, ears that uh, become hard of hearing. You no longer hear the hum of daily life, what's going on in the street outside of you. There's trouble sleeping. Even a songbird wakes you. And this is something that uh, we probably all noticed about people as they get older. As you get older, you fall asleep when you should be awake, and you're awake when you really need to be sleeping. Kind of like a baby. We kind of go back to where we were in the beginning. Solomon says, the daughters of music are brought low, probably referring to loss of vocal strength. Your voice is not the same. Verse 5 speaks of fears that crop up and the very elderly are often vulnerable in all kinds of ways. And that's why they are preyed upon. And it's why one way we can honor the elderly is by protecting them from people who would take advantage of them. He speaks of the almond tree that blossoms. That could be hair turning white. He says desire is diminished. There is a loss of desire for things that were once enjoyed. In fact, it's really interesting. Uh, There's an old man in 2 Samuel chapter 19 who comes to David, and he really gives a good summary of bodily breakdown that happens towards the end of life he's 80 years old and this is what he says he says can I discern what is pleasant and what is not can your servant taste what he eats and drinks can I still listen for the voices of singers so he's talking about how his senses are shutting down he's no longer able to enjoy what he once did Psalm 71 uh, is another example of this where the psalmist grapples with the challenges of getting older. And he prays to God, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength is spent. That's the kind of prayer that grows out of what Solomon is talking about here. Finally, Solomon describes death. Verse 5, man goes to his eternal home and mourners go into the streets. It's like he's describing a funeral procession. He says death is like the snapping of a silver cord and the shattering of a golden bowl. It's like your life is hanging by a thread and that thread is fraying and it's going to break. When it does, the bowl will shatter. The fact that he uses gold and silver here suggests that in death, something beautiful is lost, something valuable. These are precious metals that he's using to describe human life. There's something valuable and precious lost when death finally hits. Verse 7, he says, in death, dust returns to the earth. It's dust to dust. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. The body goes down into the ground, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. That's how Solomon describes death. And so Solomon returns to his refrain here. Some translations say vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I, it's actually much better to read it vapor, vapor, all is vapor. Reality to us, life to us is vapors. You can't grab hold of, of it anymore than you can grab hold of the vapor or the fog or the mist. And death is the ultimate proof of that. Death is the ultimate proof that you do not control your life. Death is the ultimate problem and there is no solution under the sun. Death is proof we can't control life. Death swallows up everything on our own. We cannot defeat death, and so we must surrender to it. There are no weapons, tools, or resources we have to fight off death. Jimmy Buffett, he died a billionaire. He died with a billion dollars. That money could not keep death away. That money could not keep death from taking him. That money did not give him leverage or control over his life, and if a billion dollars won't do it, you can be assured nothing else you have will either. His music and his money, it's all vapor. All of life is vapor. Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. Now, why does Solomon give us this extensive description of old age? What is Solomon doing? Why does he especially want the young to hear this? It kind of reminds me of Charles Spurgeon, who, when his kids were young, he would take them to a cemetery and he would find kids who, from the dates you could tell, had died right about the age of each one of his children and we might think oh that's so morbid that's that's terrible to do that to a child actually he just wanted his children to see the same thing that Solomon does here the reality of death that's coming for us all now I said this is not pessimism it's not pessimistic it's realistic yes but it's not pessimistic Solomon's point is not that getting old is all terrible Actually, getting old is a gift of grace. To grow old, not everybody gets that gift, that privilege. To grow old is a gift of grace, and grace makes it possible to age gracefully. You can age gracefully or not. I suggest you choose to age gracefully, and by the grace of God, you can do that. Solomon's point is not that these later years are useless. Solomon would say, as he says to the young, don't waste your youth. He would say to the old, don't waste your old age. There are no wasted years in the life God gives us. The later years of life can actually be years of great productivity and accomplishment. In fact, again, it's interesting. Many people are more productive in the second half of life than they were in the the first. For some people, you could even say the fourth quarter of life is when they do their best work. Last week I mentioned how young several of the men were who led the American Revolution and the American founding but you know what? Some of them were old as well. Many were young, but, but, but some were quite old, like Ben Franklin, who was 70 in 1776. And yet there he is in, in the twilight of life, helping form a new nation. Winston Churchill was 66 when he became prime minister in Britain and led his people against the Nazis. The British people needed his age, his experience, his wisdom, his skillful rhetoric, the leadership abilities he had developed over a long life. The average age of a Nobel Prize winner is 62. I could go on and on with examples of these sorts. There's no reason to fight getting older, except it as God's will. Aging is glorious. It has a glory all its own. Something else to think about here. If young people, and this is not directly in the text, but I think it's implied. If young people excel in one kind of strength and older people excel in another kind of strength, isn't it obvious that God designed the generations to need each other to depend upon each other young men are strong but they don't always know what to do with their strength they need the mentoring and guidance of older men old men are wise they just don't always have the energy to act on their wisdom they need that vitality of younger men to help So if you will bind the generations together, if you bind the generations together, if you see them as covenantally connected, if you refuse to to always and everywhere segregate people by age and stage of life by generation, then wonderful things can happen. Wonderful things happen when the generations learn how to work together. But when the generations are at war, everyone loses. When the generations work together, we all win. Young people today often do not honor the elderly the way they ought. Sometimes today, older folks are far too dismissive and cynical of the younger generation, forgetting, in a way, what it was like to be young. The generations need to work together. Solomon's poem here helps us understand what it means to age and to age well. Getting old for a believer should mean maturing in wisdom and grace. And so there is a real gain in getting older. The problem is this, as we grow old... We experience it primarily as a loss. In reality, there should be great gain, but we experience it as great loss. We experience getting old as a loss of strength and beauty, a loss of time and opportunities, uh, eventually a loss of loved ones. You live long enough, you're gonna see a lot of death. In old age, people often become more reflective, and that can mean having more regrets about life. Regret's not necessarily bad, not a bad thing to regret certain things you've done, if it means you are still repenting, still growing, still learning. That's what it should. You know you have matured when you can look back at your younger self with a twinge of embarrassment. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I was that way. Thomas Sowell, an old man himself, said, While it is true you learn with age, one of the things you learn is what a fool you were before. And that's true. The main reason Solomon gives us this poem about about old age in a section of his book directed especially to young people is because this is the key to a life well spent. The key to growing in wisdom, the key to using your life well is reckoning with your own mortality. In a way, you could say what Solomon is doing here is exactly what Moses does in Psalm 90 psalm 90 moses says teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom teach us about how short and how fragile and how vulnerable life is so we may grow in wisdom so we may gain wisdom teach us to number our days aright see the reality is we are all dying from the moment we are born on his, and, of course, this becomes more apparent as we go. I think of, of, of Tolkien. Uh, on his 70th birthday, he was asked how he felt. And he said, I feel like any other man my age would. He said, I feel like a tree in autumn losing its leaves. Beautiful picture for growing old. Very much like what Solomon says here. But this would be the point then. Whatever season of life you're in right now, we are all headed for autumn. Autumn. And then finally to winter, that's how it goes. You can't stop the turning of the seasons. Again, life is a one-way ticket to the grave. It only moves in one direction. A key to wisdom is facing your own mortality. The sooner a young person can realize how short, vulnerable, and fragile life is, the faster he can begin to grow in wisdom and use his life rightly. Life is vapor. We're here today, gone tomorrow. Life is a mist. No one can grab hold of it or control it. Seeing life's finish line out in front of you is at the heart of wisdom. Living in light of that reality. That's the key to running your race well. Knowing that that the seconds on the clock of your life are ticking down, that presses you to do things that matter, to use your life in ways that really count. That doesn't exclude enjoying all kinds of things. Solomon constantly harps on how we should enjoy all of God's good gifts. But we should do so in a way that is consistent with using our life to his glory for the furthering of his kingdom. Solomon says in chapter 7 that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. That is, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Why? Because you learn more wisdom at a funeral. Because that's where you see what it looks like to cross the finish line. Well, all of this brings us to Solomon's conclusion, one that he has already anticipated, but now he will spell out in detail. He gives a little interlude in verses 9 to 13 where he summarizes what he has done in this book and why we should listen to him. It's kind of like Solomon blurbs his own book. He's sharing his credentials with us. Verse 9, the preacher, that is Solomon. That's the name he's given to himself in this book. The preacher has been wise. He teaches knowledge. In this book, he has pondered many things and set in order many wise sayings. Solomon has acted as a wordsmith. Form and content match in this book. All of it reflects God's wisdom. Verse 10, he says, the preacher has written words of righteousness and truth. That is to say, his words are trustworthy. They can guide us in paths of righteousness. Verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. Think of of a cattle prod. His words guide us, yes, sometimes by causing pain and discomfort, but his words drive us to righteous action, to wise action in the world. He says the words of the knowledgeable are like well-driven nails. They're well-driven nails. You can hang your life on his words. These words shepherd us because Solomon has spoken as a shepherd. Verse 12, he says, much study is wearisome. In other words, Solomon is saying that his investigations throughout this book into every realm of human life have exhausted him. And so now he must bring all of this to a close. And so here is the conclusion to the whole matter. Drum roll, please. This is Solomon's grand conclusion. This is how the wisest man to ever live sums up the meaning of life. After all the complexities of this book, it's so simple. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. What is the meaning of life? It is to fear God and keep his commandments. It's to reckon with the final judgment. Fear God. Ecclesiastes ends the way Proverbs begins, with the fear of God. Fearing God is the alpha and the omega of wisdom. This book is all about what it means to fear God. This is the seventh time in the book the fear of God has been commanded. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God means you recognize God is God and you are not. God is God and you are a creature. So fearing God means humility before your creator. It means you trust him as your savior. It means you acknowledge him as your judge. It means you submit to him as your lawgiver. It means you know that God alone transcends the vapor. God is sovereign over all. It means you see that you're utterly dependent upon him and so you are in awe of him. You're in awe of who God is and all his attributes. You are in awe of his mercy and his grace and the bloody lengths to which he would go to forgive your sins. Psalm 130 says, with you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why does forgiveness produce fear? Because you see what it took. To accomplish that forgiveness, you have to fear a God who will nail his own son to a tree and let him bleed out, bearing the wrath and weight of our sin, all in order to save his people. That's what God has done. You have to fear a God who goes to those lengths to save. To fear God is to cling to him with all your might. For us, it means clinging to Christ who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our redemption, our redemption. And so the fear of God produces obedience. It leads to obedience because those who fear God fear displeasing God. We fear God and so we keep his commandments. We fear displeasing God. Deuteronomy 4, 6, said, Moses says there to the people, he says, the commandments of God will be your wisdom in the sight of the nations. As you keep these commandments, that will manifest Wisdom in the sight of the nations. Fearing God leads to wisdom because it leads us to obey God's wise words. Not all fear is the same, of course. Not all fear is good. Fear can be bad. If you fear man, that will lead you to disobey God's commandments because you'll be more concerned about obeying man's commandments and more concerned about displeasing man. The fear of man is the beginning of folly. The fear of man is the beginning of foolishness. Some fears are bad, but the kind of fear Solomon has in view here is good. It's like the fear somebody has when they get a really bad illness that sends them to the doctor for treatment. It's like having fear of failing a class, and so that makes you diligent to study really hard. It's like fear of getting in a wreck that leads you to drive carefully. The fear of the Lord leads you to obey him. Obeying God is the key that opens the door to the good life. Do you believe that? That fearing God and keeping his commandments is the key that unlocks the door to the good life? Solomon says, all our works will be judged by God. Final judgment is coming. Uh, Coming judgment means we all have skin in the game. We've all got something at stake in how we live. It means we are all responsible for how we live and what we do. See, the existence of God, the final judgment, and human responsibility all go together as corollaries. They all stand or fall together. Either nothing matters or everything matters. There's no in between. Solomon tells us everything matters. It all matters because God will bring it all into judgment. Everything will be judged. Solomon says, this is man's all. This is man's mission, man's purpose. This is how he finds meaning and significance and fulfillment and joy in life. This is man's duty. This is what God has made us to do, to fear him and obey him. Fearing and obeying God right now is preparation for the final judgment that is to come in the future. You might wonder why. How how does the future judgment connect to living with wisdom today? What's the link? What ties these together? Well, it's simple, really. The final judgment means we are all accountable. And because we are all accountable, we are all responsible. Now, understand, if there's anything that characterizes modern people, it is the flight from responsibility. Look, life is vapor. Life is complex, it's complicated, it's unpredictable, it's inscrutable. And yet... You will be held responsible for how you live in this vaporous world. God will judge it. No one will be exempt. You can't control the vapor, but you can control yourself. And that's what you're responsible for. Life is vapor. Take responsibility for yourself anyway. Don't be vexed by the vapor. Do what God commands in the midst of your vaporous life. Your circumstances may or may not be your fault. Your circumstances may not be your fault but they are your responsibility and you will be judged for how you live in this vaporous world. Taking responsibility means eliminating a spirit of defeatism from your heart and mind. Taking responsibility means taking ownership for your life and for the outcomes of your decisions. Taking responsibility is the opposite of entitlement culture, where you just think about what I'm owed, what other people owe me, how other people need to change. Taking responsibility is the opposite of victim culture, where my failures are always someone else's fault. Taking responsibility is the opposite of feeling sorry for yourself. It's the opposite of self-pity. It's the opposite of making excuses. And for all these reasons and many, many more, this is why taking responsibility for your life produces grit, it produces resilience, it produces perseverance, it produces patience, because you know you are answerable for what you do. You are answerable for how you live your life. Without responsibility, without a final judgment, life is meaningless. Now, I have to add this just as as a caveat In taking responsibility for yourself, do not try to take responsibilities for things that are not really your responsibility. There are many people who do that, and that is a pathway to misery. Your responsibilities, like you, are finite and bounded. You should differentiate your responsibilities from those of other people. But your responsibilities are real nonetheless. Being responsible does not require that you control your circumstances or other people, but it does require you to control yourself, to govern yourself, to rule yourself. Our culture subsidizes irresponsibility in all kinds of ways. And so what do we get? We get more irresponsibility. So for example, the Bible says, if an able-bodied man won't work, he shouldn't eat. Maybe that sounds harsh to modern ears, but it's a reality. We don't practice that today responsibility means understanding you are the main source of your problems see whenever you blame somebody else for your problems you really give that thing power over you Solomon's saying no you're going to be judged you're responsible you can't pass the buck you can't do what Adam did in Genesis 3 and pass the blame on to somebody else for something you did No, take ownership. Lean into your responsibilities. Lean into your responsibilities in your family, at work, in school, at church. If you think the way a lot of modern people do today, if you think, oh, well, nothing I do really matters. Nothing I do is going to change anything. My choices don't really impact my life. It is what it is. If that's how you think, as so many people do today, that kind of passivity about life leads to misery and ruin. It is the opposite of the conclusion Solomon draws here. And so we can ask the question, what grounds us in life? What keeps us on course in life? In the modern world, the whole modern project is about creating your own identity. And so modern people obsess they obsess over finding themselves and finding their identity. By contrast, Solomon would say we should be obsessed with doing our God-assigned duty. We should be obsessed with fulfilling our responsibilities. That is your wisdom. That is your joy. That is your meaning in life. That's what it's all about. The greatest thing in life is to fear God by trusting, obeying, and worshiping him That is what life is all about. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.